Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Many things have ground to a halt over the course of the past year, but one of the things that definitely hasn't is the private equity interest in advisor platforms. In the not-too-distant past, James Hay, Novio and Parmenian have all been bought by private equity firms. According to analysis by the Lancat, the proportion of platforms owned by private equity has gone up from 2% to 5% over the past five years, while the proportion owned by life companies, their traditional owners, has fallen from 55% to 17% over the same time period. So what does this mean for platforms? And by extension, what does this mean for advisors? With me to help answer this question is Dan Marsh, head of customer at Seckel, and Martin Jennings, chief executive of, well, Parmenian. Hello both. Hi, good afternoon, Damien. Hello. Hi, Damien. Hi, Martin. Hi, both. So, as I mentioned, the life companies who have traditionally owned platforms, mainly uh, perhaps to see them as a distribution arm, have retreated from, from the platform space and, and private equity firms have uh, moved in. To what extent do either of you see that this changes uh, the nature of, of what a platform is? Um, Martin, you're probably a good person to start with on this question, given that you uh, have uh, first-hand experience. Yeah, look, so for me, I don't think it changes what a platform is. I mean, fundamentally, what is a platform? Uh, It's 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 an administration platform. It's a piece of technology with a set of services that acts as a set of books and records for clients' accounts. It provides online reporting, online access, provides and facilitates the ability to, you know, by certain investment instruments at the end of the day. So I think from for your question, the answer of, you know, does it change what a platform is? I think fundamentally it doesn't change what a platform is. However, I think you have to think about the strategies of the firms that were owning those platforms at, at different stages. So if you go back, um, you know, not that, not that far actually, you know, the, the life companies were looking at, at platforms as, effectively a retention of a retention of assets a retention of customers kind of strategy whereas now i think that that's slightly changed and we'll probably come on to that a bit uh, in the future if you look at kind of how some of the major life companies would have entered the market in the early 2000s versus how fidelity would have looked at the market they both had platforms but they had fundamentally different strategies at that point in time Mm. And you are in the midst of making that journey from from standard life uh, to um, a private equity owner. Uh, do you feel that that's going to change the emphasis of what you do? No, I think for Parmenian it doesn't change. I mean, we were owned, we were we were purchased by um, Aberdeen Asset Management in 2016 and, and moved into the asset management side. Um, the merger of Aberdeen Asset Management and Standard Life didn't really impact on the Parminian business. We've kind of continued to do what we do uh, through that period between 2016 and and, and now. Um, yes, we're going through a process with, with preservation capital, looking, acquiring the business, and, and, and we're working kind of through that change of control process at the moment, so probably more on that in, in, in the future. But fundamentally, it doesn't change what we do. Um, it might change the motivations of the, of the ownership structure or the people that kind of the owners sort of share capital of the business. But ultimately, it doesn't change what the proposition is. You know, we've got a very smooth transition to continue doing what we do and what we do well. Mm. And Dan, what do you think? Yeah, so I think that's a good point from for Martin. I mean, for, from my perspective, the rush of private equity money into, into the platform market doesn't really change the core of what it, of what it should be. 
um, and ultimately a platform is a it should be a commodity, right? It's the place that advisors go to execute the investments and instructions and advice that they have already given. Um, and it is it really shouldn't be any more than that. And fundamentally, as a commodity, as with all commodities, you're looking for somewhere to do that safely, easily, and as cheaply as possible. Um, because fundamentally, it's the client at the end of the day that's paying paying those costs. I think one area where private equity kind of stepping a little bit further back from private equity in the platform space and looking more at private equity in the advice space, though, will drive change, is when you're looking at consolidated businesses who are acquiring multiple uh, advisor firms, perhaps either in the same region or, or across, across the country more broadly, uh, almost all of them will be looking for some form of consolidation, not just of the assets, but also of the systems that the advice firms have been using historically. Quite often, there will be a combination of CRMs, fact finds, and a whole bunch of other systems. Um, and each firm may well have a different combination. They might have some of the same, but they're likely to have a slightly different combination. And so I think where platforms will play a part going forwards is, is not necessarily directly to the private equity of platforms, but actually to the private equity in the advice businesses, which is, for me, the platform can play a really significant part in driving efficiencies across the wider advisor business. And you look to that basically as its ability to sit seamlessly as a commodity within the advisor's overall proposition. So for me, if I, you know, if I look at it from a systems perspective, you know, we are nearing a future, hopefully in the next couple of years, where advisors don't need 10 logins to 10 different systems. They log into their system of choice, and that system then works with other systems in the background to get their clients and themselves the outcome that they're paying for. Well, the thing that you seem to be... Um describing dan is a, is a piece of technology uh almost like a back office technology um a piece of back office kit uh, rather than um something that perhaps platforms have traditionally been used as by their owners which is a distribution um arm uh is that a fair sort of analysis of what you've said yeah i think so i mean there's obviously going to be space in the market for all models but but i do think that the the way to look to the future is how do we how do we generate efficiencies throughout the market that can either increase the efficiency of the advice business or, as a proxy, reduce the cost of the end customer? So if we look at you know, three or four years ago, prices across the market in many areas were higher. Technology is really an opportunity to strip out inefficiency and strip out um, cost for the end client. And I think that you can view that through the lens purely of the platform, but actually the future is viewing it through the lens of the entire infrastructure that sits behind the provision of advice. And if, if, if the platform market can, can get on that bandwagon and help drive that forwards, I think we'll be able to add value to advice businesses for, for decades to come. Martin, you yeah, can I, yeah, look, I'll add to that. I'll add to that, David. Look, so I think what you're seeing is that the, the barriers to entry are probably a lot lower now than they were traditionally. If you go back 15 years, the amount of capital that was needed to be deployed to enter what was, let's call it, the platform market at that particular point in time was, was quite significant. The provider's capability wasn't, wasn't up to scratch. Um, the outsource providers were building their propositions. And so those kind of barriers to entry were really quite high, you know, and the risks associated with that made the business case very difficult to stack up. If you look at it now, the ability for different business models to emerge either leveraging capability that's already been pre-built or packaging up different capabilities to kind of build a proposition 
I think is significantly easier than it was 15 years ago. So I think that's what we need. I think that that's probably driving a, a, a different lens onto the platform industry rather than what a platform is per se, if that makes sense. And so, you know, whether you look at that through vertical integration and or whether you look at that through providing a, a niche set of products or whether you look at that believing that you can provide administration at a different level, I think the options are higher. But what we mustn't forget is at the end of the day, there is a customer at the end of this. And that customer, for me, is the only one that's paying for kind of the value chain that sits behind that. So anything that we do, we should be continually looking to ensure that we you know, deliver those you know, excellent client outcomes at the end of the day. And I think those will be the winning models because clients will vote with their feet ultimately. Um, but I think that barriers to entry point is really quite important. And I think technology advancements, I mean, there isn't a huge amount you know, of advancements in, in, in technology. What you've got actually is people utilizing the technology we've got for better propositions. And I think we're getting better at solving the problems that we had. But I, I, I still look at our industry. We're not great at sharing data. You know, I'm sure Dan will, come, will talk to us about some of the stuff they're doing. But you know, we, you know, if, if data is that kind of you know the grease that goes through the system here, then you know ultimately there's a long way to go until we kind of get to this kind of this open world at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think just just one thing I'd add, add on to that because I think you touched on it, it briefly there, Martin, is that in, in many ways technology is is half the story. So you can build as much technology as you like, and fundamentally that can drive change and it can drive excellent customer outcomes. But it's not going to drive it on its own because actually the the middle ground is the process that people interact with technology with and how willing people are to adapt to new forms of technology. So if you look in perhaps some other markets um, that have done it a little bit better, you tend to have a consumer who um, is able to vote with their feet more easily than they have been in the market that we operate in. So actually moving from platform to platform isn't the world's easiest thing. It's not quite like setting up a new online bank account and, uh, and transferring over your old account with the, you know, with the guarantees and stuff that exist already. And I think the barriers to entry to set up platforms have certainly come down. I think one of the things we'll, we may see in time is we may see the process of exit become easier and that process drive the technology change and adoption that I think has probably been waiting for a few years. You mean the advisor exit in the platform or the platform um, exit? Well, yeah, I would say from an advisor perspective, right? Like at the moment, um, some some players are doing it a lot better than others and some players that are doing it quite poorly still have lots of clients, which in a sort of free market economy doesn't really make any sense. Um, and so actually I think as the processes of transferring clients between platforms become easier for advisors and their platforms become better at doing them themselves, I, I think you'll start to see advisors and firms voting more heavily with their feet and, and client experience being much more critical to the, the decision to do that. Mm. Would you, as and Martin, as, as somebody who runs run the platform, is that something that you feel you're likely to face? Yeah, look, I, at the end of the day, I, I'm, you know, again, I come back to that customer point. So, you know, is, it, it depends how the advisor proposition is being delivered, how they're creating value in their business, how they're de-risking their overall business, um, their view to, to risk appetite, and, and ultimately how that plays out into the benefit of the client. What I see a lot of at the moment is you know, chopping and changing where the barriers are, which might mean that somebody else has a basis point or two, and somebody might be able to procure a basis point or two. 
but does that play through to a lower cost? As Dan mentions, you know, in the in the in the D2C retail world, then you've got an ability to look at those fees and charges and the product and proposition that you're getting and and make a decision about whether that's right or wrong. I think disclosure is becoming, you know, you know, has moved on an awful long way. And so ultimately the, the client does see all of those, but they've gone to an advisor for a reason. They've outsourced that decision. They're looking for some for some um, advice. And I, I can sometimes liken it a little bit to kind of, you know, when you, when, you, when you buy your first house and you kind of get a mortgage, you don't understand mortgages. You go and see a mortgage broker, don't you? And you kind of, you know, bamboozle you with kind of all the different, you know, terms and different bits and pieces. You know, once you're sort of three or four evolutions down, you're quite happy to sort of online form and click and change. Now, I think the challenge is with our industry is that, you know, the, these products at the end of the day, you know, it's not like insurance. It's not like your motor insurance. It's not like your mortgage. You need that. You need those products. We think, and we would agree that, you know, you, you need to be saving for your retirement. But there's an element of kind of tomorrow's problem sometimes. And that's why you see people coming to their mid 40s, early 50s and, and then starting to consolidate kind of thing. So I come back to that point. At the end of the day, it's all very well chopping and changing where the barriers are and reducing the cost of the platform or upping the price of the product. But does that change the ultimate cost to customer? And are we solving a client problem at the end of the day or are we trying to solve a value chain, you know, spaghetti problem that sits behind it. Because I came, and I come back to what I said before, there's always been enough technology. I mean, I'm sure Dan's business or our business doesn't do anything that's not technology. Everything's done online. Everything's kind of done through the system. All the trading is automated. You know, the recs are all automated. You know, everything kind of works pretty seamlessly. So it's not more technology we need. It's a better understanding of kind of how we get people to understand the benefits of saving for retirement personally and i think once we can do that i think you know then we'll move on a debate but i do go right back to the beginning damien then is kind of how does the advances in technology the role that the providers play facilitate you know a, a different view of those delivery mechanisms and, and and how different advice models can work in the future and i think that's where companies like dan's are really kind of pressing you know there's a different way of looking at this it's not just doing what we did better. It's actually trying to look at the look at the world slightly differently, and I think that's where we'll start to make some significant advances. Mm-hmm. Do you see that being uh, a, perhaps a divergence between some of those platforms, which remain um, perhaps as part of a vertically integrated proposition? Um, owned by maybe a life company with an advice I'm attached and some of those platforms which are owned by you know, private equity or um, some other um, similar yeah, I think, or floating I on the stock exchange, for example. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think I look at, yes, is the answer. I think ultimately, you know, you know, we touched on what is a platform. At the end of the day, a platform's a platform's a platform. You know, if you've got the kit to kind of manage the registry and you do the trading and the, the service proposition, the humans that sit around that and and the reporting is there, what is the motivation of the of, of the organization that owns that technology, for example? If you're a quilter, you, surely you want to build a platform to support your advisor network. It's vertical integration, the requirements, um, uh, the specific requirements, I would believe should be driven by the advice network that sits within if that business. You know, if you are uh, a life company platform, then clearly you're looking at kind of getting access to distribution still, and clearly you want to tilt towards your own in-house product. If you're a DFM business like us, we've built our technology to sit around our DFM products. 
And so, you know, we're looking at the world through, you know, through what are the requirements to manage those solutions? Can we effectively manage those solutions? Can we make sure that the product is, is managed, you know, against the promise that we've set out? And then you could go on to every other business model that's out there. So I think the requirements of the platform will be different based on the motivations and the strategies of, of the businesses that own those platforms. Now, this argument that PE bad, you know, um, industry good, I, I'm, I'm not sure I'd buy that. And, and, and let me tell you why. is because, you know, ultimately, we started about the life companies entering the platform market. They entered the platform market to retain assets. And, and, and the way they accounted meant that they could put certain structures in place to kind of account for those assets and, and, and manage that transition from what was effectively a kind of income tax world into a sort of capital gains tax world. You know, our, our owners are clearly here to grow our business and growing our business sustainably, profitably, in partnership with our clients has got to be a good thing. We're not trying to retain anything. We're trying to develop the business and grow the business. And we will only do that if one, you know, we delight the advisors that we work with, and two, we give excellent client outcomes. So for me, the interests are, are perfectly aligned. Mm. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it does come back to, it comes back to alignment, and it also comes back to the problem you're trying to solve. So, you know, really, there are very few things in life that are truly a Swiss army knife. Um, and so actually, a uh, platform, whether that's integrated to your core business, whether it's a third-party platform in the market, uh, unless you're really, really clear about the problem that it's solving for your business or for your clients, you're probably not going to get the outcome that you're looking for. Um, and so, to be honest, a lot of what we do actually with firms is, I mean, and so you know, our, our model basically is to power firms to launch their own investment platforms, um, whether they be distributed to the open market or whether they be uh, in-house platforms for their own business. Um, but fundamentally, the biggest part of it is understanding why they're doing it. And the reason is always is always different. It's normally a combination of factors. Some of them, I think, will be pretty familiar to your listeners. So control, ownership, customer experience. There's, there's a whole range of, there's obviously a commercial element as well sometimes. There's a whole range of reasons why someone might do it. But, but coming back to it, I don't think there's a simplistic, uh, this model's good, that model's bad. It, it very much depends on what businesses are out to do. So, you know, if you're a, if you are a relatively large firm and you're quite sophisticated, you might decide that actually becoming a platform yourself makes sense within your model and you have the resources internally to do so. Um, equally, you might be uh, the same size business and very unsophisticated and it, it might be a, a big distraction from your core business and, and not deliver any core value to, to your clients. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you could be a much smaller advisor and, um, and you know, the, the reverse is true. It might make sense for you to do it or, or it might not. And so I think, I think where the market will end up actually is a proliferation of, of platforms. As, as Martin said in his earlier point, the barriers to entry have lowered. Um, to my mind, uh, more platforms doing slightly different things to each other increases competition and it ensures that um, you know, there are businesses out there that are already aligned to the end client and they will continue to do really, really well. And there are businesses that are less aligned and the proliferation of competition will over time reallocate new business from those that are less aligned to the end customer to those that are more aligned, which I, I am completely up for. Mm. One of the things I've been uh, wondering about is whether the some of the changes that you've both described m means that uh, for the FCA's attitudes towards uh, platforms uh, is a little bit outmoded. Uh, 
the FCA is very clear that it thinks uh, advisors should use more than one platform, for example. And that's perhaps makes sense when a, a platform is owned by a live company um, and it's a distribution arm. Perhaps when a, a, a platform is listed on the stock exchange or owned by a private equity company and it's basically a piece of technology kit that underpins your business, maybe that's not uh, necessarily tr uh, true. Well, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's it's it's, it's something I, I spend quite a lot of time um, thinking and, and talking about. And I, I think, again, it's... For for me, it's not about whether or not the regulation is is right or wrong. It's it's what's the intent behind it, and the intent behind it, as I see it, is to ensure that clients are not being shoehorned into something that's not the right fit for them, and that each client, independently to the rest of the book, uh, has a solution that, that that meets their needs at the right price. Um, and so I think you know if you go historically to you know your example, you might have had some businesses that were particularly restricted or only did certain things, and I think that's probably where that that bit of advice around trying to segment your business up onto different platforms came from. I, I struggle to see, and I'm not saying this exists at the moment in its entirety, but there is a utopia, I think, where the platform that you have selected does almost everything that you need for almost all of your clients, and that for the vast majority of your clients, in fact, there could even be a scenario where all your clients' needs are served at the right price with the right experience and the right outcome for the end customer. Um, I'm obviously not at the FCA, but I, I struggle to think that that would cause a problem if the end outcome is that the clients are getting the best deal on the market for that, for, for them, regardless of the fact that you have another customer for whom the platform's a good fit. Martin, what do you think? Yeah, look, there's a lot in your question. So to start with, I mean, I don't see us as providing, you know, selling technology. I mean, Brodura and GBST sell technology. You know, we don't, we provide a service to our clients. And so, for me, I, we're not a pure tech play, and I'm not trying to compete with the technology providers in that sense, because otherwise we'd be selling software licenses, we'd be in, in Teleflows or in you know, expands of this world or the Iris. You know, we're not we're not in that space. We're providing an administ you know, an outsourced central investment proposition with a with an administration platform. As to whether that right for all the clients within the advice business that's for the advisor to choose and again that comes down to business model and proposition so you know for, for the advisor business you know what do they believe that they're delivering and then the, you know, on a suitability basis does that does that platform match i'm not sure the fc has ever said that you can't use one platform i think they've sort of left it vague enough to sort of suggest that or infer that because generally an advisor would have you know um quite a broad range of, of client types that, that, that they're serving. And so can they all be facilitated by the provision of one platform? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. So for me, that's a decision that the, the advisor kind of makes based on their client segment, their proposition and, and, and their service offering to their clients at the end of the day. Um, and, I'm, you know, and I know the number of firms that, that do do that. The, the question will come, Generally, when I see a new client and it doesn't make sense, they're a good client and, and, and I can provide them advice, but it doesn't make sense for them to move the client from where they are to the new platform because the only person that would benefit from that would be the advisor in a sense, or you know, because the prices are fairly, fairly similar, then, then you end up with this proliferation. But you know, I do think the majority of advisors that we work with will, will kind of segment their client base and kind of and work with different solutions for different, for different segments of, of their base. So, I think there's there's different questions in, in in you know different answers to the different questions. I say well I don't I never see us as a technology 
seller. I'm not selling software licenses. You know, we're here trying to kind of make sure we look after the assets and, and do our part of, 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 the, of the promise that, that sits behind that advisor business. So, you know, lots of different views of the, of the same kind of value chain. But ultimately, you know, I don't think it's PE to your question drives, you know, uh, single use of platform. Clearly, you know, we're in business. So we would like to get a greater share of an advisor's business and a higher share of wallet. Um, but that's only possible if our proposition meets those client needs. Mm, interesting. And um, Martin, do you, do you uh, imagine that the the journey that you're on, um, that you know, others, Novia, for example, on is, is likely to be done by other um, platforms? Are we are we seeing? Are we going to see this continue? I think scale is important. So you know, um, the question is whether there's consolidation and 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 whether that you know people can, can deliver a continued kind of client outcome. And that makes sense. I think there will be an element of consolidation, and you've seen that recently. It seems to be the kind of time for that. We're not, we're not, we're not consolidating. I'm not saying we wouldn't consolidate in the future. Um, and so, you know, I think at the moment, all we're trying to do is be the best best version of, of what we can be at this at this moment in time. We're not, we're, we're not being. Uh, we're not in a strategy where we're being consolidated or consolidating at this moment in time. So for me, I think there will be more activity, but I think it will center around um, probably around how the advisor businesses, the consolidators, the consolidating advice businesses view technology and how they believe they can deliver value in the future. Because ultimately, you know, if, 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 if the, advisor consolidation continues, does it make sense for them to own, rent, or buy technology? And how will that then kind of play through into the providers of said services? Because you know, there's a lot of research out there at the moment. I saw something from Heather at Nextwealth the other day, sort of talking about the largest sort of 250 million plus, 50% of them will kind of you know, build their own platforms. You know, maybe that's true, maybe that's not true. But I actually think it comes back to, you know, what are you trying to achieve with your platform? Where does it fit in your business strategy? What are you What are you looking to do, and how do you end up giving a a better client offer at the end of the day? So I think some of those other industry factors will kind of drive that. The other piece is if you play this through a bit longer, Damien, how does the likes of the D to C entrance play out in the long run? Because at the moment. You know, it, it, I think for accumulation, D2C works. When you come to retirement, it becomes more complicated. You might be happy to invest in a in an ISA and a, and a SIP for accumulation, but say you consolidate, you know, you you build a number of different pots over over a number of years, and you come so you know, will you then start to get advice? And then once you get advice, can you then utilize the D2C platform that you've been on for a while, or will you look to merge? It's very similar to the sort of old of current account strategy of the retail banks, isn't it? That they thought we capture a lot of, you know, student accounts, then they'll stay with us. What they found is once you got a job, you went and opened up another account somewhere else. So, um, and you know, left your debt there and moved on. So I think longer term, you know, I'm not sure the outcome is very simple. What I do think is, you know, um, it's good news that a number of companies like Vanguard are entering the market because there's more awareness, there's more education, there's more people saving. And that, that's good for everybody. That's good for the industry in, in the round for me. 
Um, at the moment, advisors, I don't believe, have a problem finding clients. You know, there, there is a, you know, there is a bit of a, a supply gap there. So anybody that can fill that, great. And, and hopefully, over the long run, the advice community can start to build and, and, and build that profession. So I think that's good for the nation as a whole. Mm. Finally, Dan, how do you see this panning out? Yeah, it's, it's a good, good question. And I think there's a lot of, lot of threads to it. So I think going back right, right to the initial question around, you know, do I see the trend of platform PE consolidation continuing? I think, to be honest, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that we've necessarily seen the outcomes of that yet. I think, um, you know, the acquisition of uh, platforms that use a certain type of technology and merging their customers and their advisors onto a different technology stack has has been troubling in the past, and it's, it's not necessarily always worked out. I think if if people can get that right, then I think we'll probably see a continued trend in that in that in that way. But I think that ultimately, you know, if actually the consolidation doesn't result in a better customer experience at a similar with similar features or, or, or lower cost to clients of that platform post consolidation, I think you'll find that again advisors and clients will will look back at the disruption of the process and, and kind of consider whether or not they would want to stay with the business that that is doing that. So I, I don't know is the honest answer, but I think the proof will be in the pudding as to how successful those those transfer projects are. There's no reason why they should be, um, apart from obviously scale, which is which is clearly always challenging, there's no particular reason why they should be uh, painful. So hopefully they will go well. Um, but I think if they do, then I can see more consolidation. If they don't, uh, I think it probably won't result in more consolidation drastically off the back. Um, but yeah, to, to, be, to be seen, I think. Um, I think just coming back to that point Martin made around the, the sort of the, the process being driven in the future by advisors, I think to me it comes to a bit of a, a bit of a power uh, shift, which is that I think advisors are now getting much more control over what they can demand from providers, whether those providers be service providers, investment providers, or platforms, um, and very much starting to develop a a technical plan for how they want their business to run operationally. I think advisors have been very very good at understanding the client proposition. Um, but the infrastructure behind that has been a little bit less clear. Uh, we, we've certainly started to have, you know, conversations that I thought would be years away. You know, where people have been asking us to help, you know, find them technical talent to uh, appoint a CTO. You know, that's actually a, a shift inside a business that I, I really wasn't expecting to see for a while. Um, it's something I'd, I'd love to see actually, because the more technical firms get, the more they can make data. And again, something Martin brought up right at the beginning. Uh, one of our challenges in this market is that businesses who have the data don't want to share it and at the moment that power dynamic sits with the provider but as that dynamic shifts to sitting with the advisor um, data will become the oil that will grease the market and it will become a prerequisite for winning clients in the future is how easy is it to get things into or out of your system and how easy is it for your system to work with other systems that i'm also using and that may well be driven up front by some of these larger businesses that are consolidating but equally to be honest I've, i've actually seen similar ambitions from firms you know, much lower down the asset spectrum who just are desperate to actually drive their own destiny forward. And I think that's, that's a really interesting trend and it's something that I'm really excited to see develop over the coming years. Mm, interesting. And I think, the, sorry, just, just okay. one more part on the advisors versus fintechs because it's a bit of a passion of mine, um, is I think the market talks about it in the wrong way. They talk about advisors and fintechs as being these kind of arch enemies competing for the same client. To, to be honest, I just think that's a bit of, bit of noise. 
And I think actually what, what we're going to find is, at the end of the day, everyone's trying to solve the same problem, which is people empirically, with guidance and advice, make better decisions for their futures and their families and all of their life goals by talking to someone who knows what they're talking about, uh, aka guidance or an advisor. Um, at the moment, we have the market has split those because it's uneconomical to serve customers below certain levels of assets, and fintechs are therefore targeting particularly those uh, those clients at that level. I think the future is actually going to be a hybrid. So I, I sort of see a future where an advice business has a full advice service, a guidance service for clients who have, are perhaps somewhere on that wealth journey. They're on their own personal growth, but they're not necessarily at the stage where they need advice all the time. And then you have those D2C clients. And at the end of the day, you know, those D2C clients may well be the next generation. It could be the children of your current clients. It could be their grandchildren. It could be um, advised clients who are previously advised that no longer need that service. And a firm's ability to transition clients between those propositions and between their standard advice propositions, I think is going to be really central to the future. And ultimately, financial technology can allow you to do that. And I don't think they're the enemies that, that they seem to be presented as. I actually think we'll probably be looking forward in five years and see tie-ups between fintechs that have built great customer experiences but don't have access to the client book and advisors that have great clients and they have an excellent relationship with those clients but don't have in-house technical skills. Mm. Interesting. Well, I, I think you, you have, uh, Damien, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. we're, all, we're all trying to serve the clients here. So, um, and we play our different roles. I think... The, the challenge is which way you look at it. So I think advisor businesses, you know, whether they want to go down and become platform operators, whether they want to run tech, and I said the barriers to entry are lower, but it's not all about price at the end of the day. And I think culturally, when you look at advice businesses, they are very good at serving clients. They are the face of the, the industry out. Um, they, they are very good at finding new clients. They're very good at providing the services. What they want from their providers sometimes is just as basic as just you know, we, we always say do the basics brilliant in this industry, but not many people, not many people do. I think we all aspire to it. Nobody's trying to do a bad job. But, but, the, but the cultural differences between that and a business then that kind of runs custody, you know, that, that, that does trading and settlement, that, you know, looks at pensions legislation, that kind of manages regulatory change, they're actually very different. I think Dan makes a good point in, in, in the future, the businesses will expand and they will become that. But we have to understand that there are, there are differences for a reason. It's, you know, otherwise, why don't I just go and start an asset manager, for example? Now, we do our bit in terms of portfolio construction. But if it was as simple as that, I'd buy an asset manager, I'd build an asset manager, I'd start an advice business and I'd do it, do it, do it all ourselves kind of thing. But I don't think that's the right way to go because I think ultimately, you know, culturally, we're different and we've just got to get better at doing our doing the bit that we do and, and do it well. And as long as we can ensure that the connectivity works between those, then why would you take on that risk? If you as an advisor can build value in your business by not having to do all of those things, why would you? Because you, you might get the allure of a couple of basis points, but then when you start looking at the regulatory capital that you have to hold, the potential for kind of owning the, the issues that kind of might come when the fund managers pay late, et cetera, et cetera, it actually becomes really more problematic than it's worth. And I think we do have to recognize, you know, that nobody's trying to do a bad job here. Everyone's trying to do a good job. Um, and, and, and maybe there are just differences between the different parts of the delivery mechanism here. Hmm. I think from, from my perspective, I obviously come at it from a, from a slightly different 
view, I, I think I, I think I'd just challenge back in that actually I think you can do more than one, stay in one lane. And I think if you look at fundamentally, if you come back to what a platform is, it isn't it is a commodity, it's an execution destination. Um, and I think that uh, there's a difference between what a custodian does, which is, as you say, you know, they deal with the late dividends and all that sort of stuff, and what a platform operator does. Platform operator fundamentally is propositional, customer service based, um, and I guess regulatory to a degree as well, depending on their exact structure. Um, and I think certainly within the within the the market to date, obviously some platforms, I know yourselves are often very highly rated for customer service, so it's not necessarily uh, looking at businesses such as that, but you do tend to find some platforms do come out um, quite poorly in their in their core market, and I think that you know we, we've got a platform on our technology P1. Um, they were recently rated top for advisor customer service um, by the Lancat. Now, of course, that's only you know it's a, it's a one touch point. I'm not saying it's it, it's historic, and the guys there have worked really really hard to deliver excellent outcomes. Um, but that business three or four years ago was an advice business, um, and then and then obviously a DFM after that as well. So I, I don't think everybody is going to want to take that jump, and I, I do. I, I don't think it would be reasonable to suggest that. I think it would be quite dangerous. Um, but there will certainly be firms, I think, that that can handle that extra, that extra piece. And I think if you're doing it for a couple of basis points, you're probably not doing it for the right reason. I think you've got to be doing it because you believe it's the right thing for your customers. And if if there are incidental benefits to that, that's great. Um, but ultimately, I think it's about service continuity. It's about, you know, customers always say that their relationship with their advisor is the most valuable one. Um, you, and then after that, probably the investment manager. And then maybe after that, the platform, if they can even remember who they actually use. I think, again, NextWealth came out with something like 50% of clients don't even realize they're on a platform. Mm. And so I think kind of fundamentally for me, that that's where the opportunity exists is, can you provide continuity across across a whole range of things? Interesting. Great. Well, uh, I'm sure we could have this discussion for a long, long time, but I'm afraid we have to end it there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dan. Uh, thank you very much, Martin. And uh, thank you very much for everybody for listening and tune in again next week for the next edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.